Okay, so welcome everyone to uh, the latest uh, Aristotelian Society meeting. It gives me uh, enormous pleasure uh, to welcome Sarah Moss of the University of Michigan, who will be talking to us about moral encroachment. Thanks very much. Thank you. And so thanks very much for having me, and especially to everyone for coming out to this different place despite the strike action. Uh, I was talking to my friend Ofra Mahidor, and she said that the Oxford students are arguing that if there's an event such that you would just do it for fun, and it then it doesn't constitute work, so it's not strictly speaking inconsistent with the strike. So uh, we figured out that like my moral goal for the talk is actually to make it fun and exciting enough that you'll all be very glad that you came and would have come regardless. Um, so uh, I'm going to start actually with an excerpt from an American poet, <coughs> Daniel Beatty, and. This is going to serve as you know, a vivid example of one thing I want to talk about in my talk. So these are just excerpts from this poem. He says, <clears throat> yes, officer, is there a problem? Yes, this is my car. ID? May I ask why? Bang, you don't know me. Man, I live on this block, third house on the right. When my beamer's in the shop and a cabbie passes me by on the street, hey, man, I'm already late. What, you think I won't tip? Bang, you don't know me. When a woman clinches her purse and crosses the street, bang, you don't know me. When the clerk follows me through the store at Macy's, what are you looking at? I can buy 10 of these leather coats if I want them. Bang, you don't know me. So, Beatty's an African-American poet, and uh, this is an epistemology talk, um, but it's an epistemology talk with a moral dimension. I want to talk about how moral facts can end up having epistemic consequences. In particular, how moral facts can make a difference to what you know. And uh, the inspiration for this general idea comes from the literature on pragmatic encroachment. So many of you are probably familiar with Phantom McGrath's book. This idea has also been pushed by John Hawthorne and Jason Stanley. Uh, to take a classic example, DeRose's bank cases, you got Hannah and Sarah, and they're driving past the bank, and they need to deposit a check. And they believe the bank's going to be open on Saturday, so... They plan to deposit the check then. And uh, suppose the stakes are high so that if the bank happens to be closed, they'll miss this massively important mortgage um, payment. Then the claim goes, their belief that the bank will be open can fail to be knowledge, even if it's true, simply in virtue of this practical fact that the stakes, the financial stakes for them are so high. So recently, some people have started examining the moral analog of pragmatic encroachment. So the claim is, moral encroachment thesis, the epistemic status of an opinion can depend on its moral features. And so this talk is going to be a contribution to that literature in moral encroachment. It's basically a philosopher's philosophy talk. I'm going to take every bit of this thesis and examine it in excruciating detail. So we're going to go through four notions, epistemic status, opinions, dependence, moral features. And <clears throat> I'm going to raise, as I go through and examine them, a few problems for the existing literature uh, on moral encroachment. And throughout, I also want to focus on, as a case study of moral encroachment, cases of racial profiling. So I define racial profiling as a doxastic practice. It's simply forming a belief or, or an opinion about a person uh, on the basis of statistics about members of their racial group. And that's illustrated by this poem that I read at the start. 
There are four uh, interactions Beatty has with others in the poem. He interacts with a police officer, a cab driver, a pedestrian, and a store clerk, and they all form opinions about him on the basis of his racial group. And moral encroachment can help us better understand, I think, one way in which those beliefs that they form are problematic. So, <clears throat> launching in with epistemic status, there are, it has to be said at the front, lots of potential problems with this doxastic process of racial profiling. In particular, let me acknowledge there are many moral problems with profiling. So, uh, Lawrence Bloom and very recently Rimba Basu um, at USC, they argue, look, you can harm someone by profiling them. That constitutes a direct lack of respect for their character, maybe. You wrong someone in virtue of having certain beliefs. Also, forming beliefs about a person by profiling could be morally bad in virtue of having or enabling certain morally bad actions. Uh, so Adelson, Ben Adelson has a book arguing that profiling enables actions that are wrong in virtue of failing to treat people as individuals. Um, Debbie Hellman, she's at UVA Law, she says, hey, profiling enables actions that express demeaning messages. And Sally Haslinger would argue that uh, profiling enables actions that contribute to structural oppression. So throughout this talk, please keep in mind, it's just like this overriding rider, that uh, there are many problems with profiling. So often in social media, you'll hear people talk about the problem with profiling. So that definite description, that's just like one pet peeve of mine. Um, so there are, let's just suppose, up to 30 potential problems with profiling. I'm interested in one of them. And while these moral problems with profiling are important, they are not the interest of this epistemology talk. I'm interested in a different critique of beliefs formed by profiling um, and notice, I think Beatty's also interested in that critique because he's not making a moral judgment of the police officer, store clerk, etc. He's saying, you don't know me. It's an epistemic problem. So <clears throat> I want to identify an epistemic problem for, say, the cab driver's full belief that Beatty's not going to tip him, and also for... Uh, other credency attitudes, like the opinion that Beatty's more likely to steal my purse, say, than the person across the street. The idea behind moral encroachment is that these sorts of opinions can be epistemically deficient in virtue of having certain moral features. Um, there is, the idea is, maybe no similar epistemic critique of other kinds of profiling of objects with less moral status. So if I judge that this pit bull in front of me is more likely to attack me than the poodle across the street, that can be epistemically fine, that inference, in the way that the inference about Beatty is not. So that's really the sort of, um, that's a, a, a feature that I want to bring out by arguing for moral encroachment. And I should also make at this point this note that even that particular asymmetry is not uncontroversial. In fact, that's been challenged, this idea that, oh, look, there's this difference between pitbulls and people from both sides. So um, on the one hand, you have Fred Schauer in this book, Profiles, um, Probabilities, and Stereotypes, arguing, so this is a quote from his book, if the principal argument against the opponents of breed-specific restrictions on dogs is that the restrictions are little different from widely accepted bases for restriction, then is not the same true for people as well? 
So you just, you know, tons of ponens. Let's start profiling people. And on the other hand, you also have people arguing, Pitbull fans, that hey, like even this breed-specific legislation, this is really bad. Um, so in Denver and Miami, for instance, it's illegal to own a pit bull. Uh, in other cities and, and countries, dogs have to wear muzzles um, or be spayed or neutered. And so there are actually activist groups who fight back against that legislation, calling it instances of canine racism. <clears throat> so uh, pit bulls in particular is a bit of a charged subject. Uh, and so in light of that, I want to say, like, if there are Pitbull fans in the room, like, you should actually just substitute in your head when I say Pitbull something, like, um, that you don't think has, I don't know, something like snapping turtles, like, less moral status. Or if you're a turtle fan, like, maybe leeches or viruses or, yeah, just keep going till you think it's okay to profile. Um, I think if you just look at Twitter, the hashtag not all Pitbulls, you'll find about a 50-50 split between people who really are earnest... Uh, you know, advocates like uh, for getting rid of breed-specific legislation, and then other the other fifty percent, they're just trolling them. You know, here's like the latest picture of some mangled pitbull attack victim, and then you know, hashtag not all pitbulls. Um, so, and uh, it's funny because I actually just heard from Robbie Williams that he, unfortunately he was in surgery today because he was attacked yesterday by a pitbull mastiff mix, and so I'm not feeling particularly sympathetic to pitbulls myself at the moment. Um, so I'll just join the trolls just for the purposes of the talk and take that as my, as, my, uh, as my stalking horse. So the idea is simply that profiling a person by race, according to the advocate of moral encroachment, can be epistemically worse than profiling a dog by breed. Um, and this particular epistemic deficiency arises in virtue of moral features about Daniel Beatty and your opinion about him. And more generally, we can define quote, epistemic status of an opinion to be the set of its epistemic features, perhaps positive, whether it's knowledge, whether it's justified, whether it counts as evidence, whether it's warranted enough to serve as a reason for action, for instance. The thesis of moral encroachment says, look, the epistemic status of an opinion can depend on its moral features. So, uh, one more clarification. I said there are many moral problems with profiling. I also think, in addition to the one I'm discussing, there are many epistemic problems with profiling. So a racist police officer, say, might, for instance, mistake a predicate that's not projectable for one that is. So an eliminativist about race, for instance, would say, um, you're acting as if we can project on the basis of someone's race what certain characteristics they'll have in a way that is just as bad as um, someone who mistakes, uh, you know, improjectable predicates like grew um, for projectable ones like being green. And Miranda Fricker would argue, here's another epistemic problem. Uh, that racist police officer has stereotypes that are just resistant to counter evidence. Familiar general epistemic problem. Of course, we want to criticize people whose beliefs are resistant in an irrational way to counter evidence. Uh, Sally Haslinger would add, oh, this racist police officer is going to be disposed to make a lot of invalid inferences, say from descriptive facts to claims about what um, kinds of people are disposed to criminal activity. And of course, as an epistemologist, I will criticize those people, invalid inferences, we should never be making them. But I'll notice 
all of those mistakes, they're general epistemic mistakes, uh, mistaking an unprojectable predicate for a projectable one, having beliefs resistance to counter evidence, like they're familiar mistakes that as Bayesians, like we got this. Um, whereas by contrast, I, I just want to focus on this epistemic phenomenon that essentially involves some kinds of moral facts, such that really moral differences between profiled subjects, for instance, could help explain why all of a sudden we see a problem with the practice of profiling. <clears throat> so that sums up epistemic status. And so now I'm going to talk about the opinions that I have in mind uh, that the profiling subjects are forming. So strictly speaking, I'm going to define opinions to include both full beliefs and probabilistic beliefs. So by probabilistic beliefs, now I mean, for instance, your credences. Like if you've got 0.5 credence that a coin landed heads, uh, those degrees of belief, those subjective probability assessments. Um, that's an example of probabilistic beliefs. And in addition to your precise credences, you might also have probabilistic beliefs that are like threshold beliefs, like, oh, I think it's at least 0.6 likely that P, or comparative probability judgments. I think this person's more likely to attack me than this other one. Uh, so all of those kinds of probabilistic beliefs that supervene on your credences, say, Plus, I'll throw in some epistemic modal beliefs, and there you've got the gamut of opinions that are studied by, I just want to allow, like both the traditional and the formal epistemologists. So <clears throat> if the moral encroachment could affect, in principle, like any of these opinions, uh, we can now ask, well, which of them really are such that their epistemic status can depend on their moral features? And the traditional answer among advocates of moral encroachment is it's just the full beliefs that are encroached on. So the you know, rapidly growing uh, literature on moral encroachment is pretty much devoted to an evidentialist thesis about the underlying credence attitudes, the probabilistic beliefs. Um, so they say, this is Michael Pace, uh, wrote one of the earliest papers on moral encroachment. He says, hey, look, the moral encroachment view of reasoning accepts evidentialism. Uh, we can accept degree of confidence evidentialism. And our job is to as match our confidence to the evidence. And Renee Bollinger in a forthcoming paper says, hey, look, uh, if demographic statistics justify your having high credence that an individual has a feature, then it seems morally and epistemically permissible to increase your credence in proportion with your statistical evidence. By contrast, they do want to say that when it comes to full beliefs, moral features make a difference. So Basu and Schroeder, um, Mark Schroeder, write, as the moral considerations against full belief increase, so does the evidence that's required in order to epistemically justify that belief. And Georgie Gardner says, look, uh, several theorists have recently argued, like if a belief might wrong a person or group, then the threshold for justified belief is higher than for a belief that's morally neutral, more evidence is required to justify that full belief attitude. So the idea here is moral encroachments being taken to govern, if you will, the interface between 
full beliefs and probabilistic beliefs. So when the moral stakes are low and you get some evidence confirming a hypothesis, you're justified in raising your credence <coughs> in that claim. And then also you might be justified in fully believing that claim. Whereas when the stakes are really high, what changes is you get evidence, you're still justified in raising your credence. It's just now maybe you would need even more evidence to get past that you know, full belief threshold to have a full belief be justified. And I want to acknowledge that this picture, this contrast between the full beliefs and probabilistic beliefs is not really surprising. First, for two reasons. First, moral analog, uh, moral encroachment is supposed to be the analog of pragmatic encroachment. And in the pragmatic encroachment literature, pretty much we get the same distinction. So Ross and Schroeder in a 2014 paper on pragmatic encroachment say, look, it's just widely held that there's no pragmatic encroachment on justified degrees of belief or levels of confidence, as these should be strictly apportioned to the evidence. Second reason why the contrast is not surprising, evidentialism about credences seems pretty compelling. So define, if you will, evidential probability as the probability of a claim conditional, um, the probability that results from feeding all your total evidence to the super baby or prior Williamson's glowing objective probability measure. Uh, that records, if you will, some kind of objective likelihood facts. So um, you might think, look, surely like, statistical evidence can indeed raise your evidential probability about a particular individual in a group. So if we then accept, though, hey, wait, my credences ought to match my evidential probabilities, boom, seems like statistical evidence can just make it the case that... Uh, it can change what credences you ought to have. So this seems not surprising, this contrast, but I want to suggest there's a problem, which is, in fact, uh, it comes in when we want to apply our theory of moral encroachment to cases of, say, racial profiling. Um, so when you look at just real examples in the world where we want moral encroachment to do some work, Many of them actually involve uh, subjects acting not on full beliefs, but on the basis of probabilistic beliefs. So it's true, I think, that the cab driver in the poem might be construed as forming the full belief that Daniel Beatty won't tip him. But if you recall, for instance, the police officer who stops Beatty in his car, um, so when Beatty begins hey, officer, what's the problem? Why do you need my ID? Plausibly, the officer doesn't actually have, he's not acting on the full belief that Beatty is engaged in some criminal activity. So as a Bayesian, what I want to say is, well, look, he's got some credence, like, I don't know, 0.31 credence that Beatty's engaged in criminal activity, and that rises above a certain threshold uh, of credence that's needed to justify, in this officer's mind, the traffic stop. Similarly, uh, the woman crosses the street, the pedestrian. It's not because she thinks, it's not because she has a full belief that she's about to be attacked by the person in front of her. I mean, if I had a full belief that I was about to be attacked by somebody in front of me, I would not simply cross the street. I would literally just reach for, you know, whatever weapon I could, run in the other direction. She's not engaging in any of those actions. 
So anyone who's a fan of credences thinks that they play, in fact, an important role in your psychology. Uh, they team up with your utilities and they motivate action. And so we've got plenty of subjects engaged in just that kind of um, reasoning. And I want to say, look, um, how do we criticize the opinions, i.e. the probabilistic beliefs of the subjects that Beatty mentions? So the problem is, hey, look, this evidentialist thesis isn't going to work. Um, so as my solution, I want to say, you know what? I accept the evidentialist thesis that your credences are justified if and only if they match your evidential probabilities. I'm also going to accept the thesis that merely statistical evidence can raise your evidential probability that, say, someone in front of you is going to assault you. But your credences can still be, even if they match your evidential probabilities, epistemically bad, even if they're justified. Because, and here's where the moral encroachment gets a foothold, even those justified credences, they can be bad in virtue of failing to be knowledge. All right, so at this moment, it might sound like I'm making a category mistake. Uh, and now I say, turn the page. I'm here to tell you it isn't. Um, so you might have thought, like, hey, wait, like the credences are just, the credences aren't knowledge. Hey, wait, like, who says credences can be knowledge? So spoiler alert, I just published this book. It's called Probabilistic Knowledge. Um, and so you guessed it, like the thesis, one of the central theses of this book is that credences are actually able to have that epistemic gold star of constituting knowledge. So credences can be or not be knowledge in just the same sense as full beliefs. Um, and in fact, that's why I started thinking about moral encouragement. It was through um, wanting to locate uh, failing to constitute knowledge as one sort of way in which moral encouragement could get a foothold in how we criticize people's credences. Um, so just to to pause a few minutes, and so the book came out, it actually came out in the UK last month, so, um, and it doesn't even come out in the US till April, so if you order it on amazon.co.uk, you'll be the envy of all your friends stateside who have to wait two months for, the, I guess, the shipping containers to cross the Atlantic, um, or, or for a book that I'm going to smuggle back into my suitcase. Um, maybe I'll wait to post this podcast until after I make it through immigration. Uh, so, but if, if uh, but I, I'll give you the 60 second overview of the book. So the idea is, you know, when we use these probability operators, like in one through five on the handout, um, when I say things like, oh, it's 0.5 likely the coin landed heads, or, oh, it's, it's probable that you have cancer. We actually are expressing probabilistic beliefs and those Beliefs that we express um, are in some instances knowledge. So if a doctor looks at your x-ray and says you probably have cancer or it's 0.6 likely you've got cancer, maybe that credence for the doctor is actually knowledge. Whereas if you call up your paranoid cousin and your cousin hears you were at the hospital and says you probably got cancer, I mean, that credence of your cousin is not knowledge. And so you can get probabilistic knowledge in pretty much all the same ways in which you could get full belief knowledge. Uh, for instance, from the doctor, you can get probabilistic knowledge by testimony. But I also think you can get it, say, by perception. So 
Jeffrey describes looking at a green colored greenish patch and forming on the basis of your observation 0.6 credence that the patch is green. So I think that might be a case where you just know by looking that the patch is 0.6 likely green. And what I mean is your 0.6 credence constitutes perceptual probabilistic knowledge. And to give you a bit more of a feel for it, I think there are cases where probabilistic beliefs can be justified, but still epistemically bad, and intuitively just the way that justified full beliefs are bad when they're not knowledge. So a final example for you, you've got Alice and her friend Bert, and they enter this psychology study. And as part of this study, they're going to inject some of the female participants with a heavy dose of adrenaline and others with just some saline solution. It's randomized. Alice has no idea about the adrenaline. She's injected with the adrenaline and sent to meet Bert, and she reflects on her fluttering nerves and thinks, oh, you know, maybe I probably like this guy. So she raises her credence. She's got high credence on the basis of her fluttering nerves that she's attracted to Bert. You might think, hey, justified high credence, fluttering nerves are decent evidence of attraction. But something feels like a little epistemically bad about the high credence. And if I ask you why, you might say, look, I mean, Alice doesn't know that she probably likes Bert. So this is the probabilistic analog of a Gettier case for full belief. And so in probabilistic knowledge, I'm putting forward a theory of knowledge that can explain in a unified way why Alice's probabilistic belief is bad and also why the beliefs of traditional Gettier subjects are bad. They both get to be bad in that same way of just simply failing to be knowledge. So that's the, that's the Cliff Notes version of the book. Um, so the idea is, hey, look, if you've got this subject who's engaged in racial profiling, let's grant, just for sake of argument, that we've ruled out um, a lot of epistemic problems that might prevent those credences from matching their evidential probabilities for these subjects. I'm going to grant to the advocate of profiling for sake of argument that this woman's high, uh, this woman's higher credence that Beatty will assault her than someone across the street matches her evidential probability. I'll grant that in that sense her credence is justified, but I'll say it's epistemically deficient. Why? Well, she can't rule out that this person in front of her is actually just not at all well represented by statistics about his racial group. Uh, similarly, the police officer can't rule out, for instance, the possibility that uh, the driver, Beatty, lives on this street, quote, third block on the third house on the right, in which case um, that actually would make him very unlikely, certainly way less than 0.31 likely to be engaged in criminal activity and so on. So in virtue of failing to rule out certain possibilities that are inconsistent with their probabilistic beliefs, these subjects, in a very familiar way, have credences that just don't constitute knowledge. And the more general upshot for theories of moral encroachment is that, in fact, even if you go in for an evidentialism about credences, matching your evidential probabilities is just not the only game in town. So as epistemologists, we can say, whether your credences are knowledge 
is going to depend on, can depend on their moral features. Um, which is why you might actually know based on statistics that a pit bull in front of you is more likely to attack you than a poodle and fail to know any kind of similar opinion um, about a person. So let me go through a few frequently asked questions about this view at this point. Uh, one question, well, look, you've said credences could match evidential probabilities or they could be knowledge, so how am I supposed to judge them? Answer, both. Uh, so justification is one sort of epistemic gold star. Knowledge is another. And when I say that I follow lots of knowledge-first theorists in being a kind of pluralist about norms for belief, and so in one sense you should believe something if and only if you're justified in believing it. In another sense, maybe you should believe it if and only if you know it. Um, that should, you know, I was raised at MIT where everybody's crots are about modals and this weak epistemic modal, necessity modal gets no different sort of treatment from me. So following in that crosser tradition, I just accept that there are multiple legitimate rubrics for judging belief. Another question, okay, fine, so justification norms, knowledge norms for belief, but when do the knowledge norms actually matter? I mean, does it really matter whether your credences are knowledge if we just allow that they're justified? Answer, well, yeah, it's gonna matter in all the same cases where <coughs> traditionally we took it to matter whether your justified full beliefs were or weren't knowledge. So example, if you thought knowledge matters for assertion, if you think, yeah, that's a good explanation for why even though I'm justified in believing my ticket lost the lottery, I can't just say, my ticket lost. Then similarly, you'll think, yeah, it does sound odd for me to just straight up assert, oh yeah, this person's more likely to attack me than that person over there on the basis of your statistical evidence about their race. And I can explain why uh, that probabilistic belief is not okay for you to assert. Why? Because even if it's justified, like it's not knowledge for you. Another question. Okay, I've got a grip on these multiple norms of belief, but what about when it comes to action? Uh, surely standard decision theory is going to tell me when it's okay to act. It's just going to be do whatever maximizes expected utilities given what your credences are, whether or not they're knowledge, right? Answer, you know, typically this knowledge first crowd, they actually also go in for knowledge norms of action. So I'm in that camp. Chapter eight of the book is called Knowledge in Action, and I defend a couple of probabilistic knowledge norms of action. So I'm a pluralist about norms of action, like I am for belief. And um, I think in particular, even if you're not a fan of general norms that say, hey, all actions have to, in some sense, be based on knowledge, uh, even if, not you're a if you're not a fan of general knowledge norms, I think there are some contexts in which it really does intuitively matter to all of us that people are acting on knowledge. And I think legal contexts are an excellent example so the standard of proof in a civil court is just preponderance of the evidence. So to find you liable for trespassing, it's just got to be proved more likely than not that you trespassed. <clears throat> Here's a puzzle. 
Suppose you've got, so this is from Cohen in the 70s, uh, you've got a thousand people at a rodeo and 501 of them trespassed. So pull some random person off the seats. Now you've got evidential probability 0.501 that they trespassed. Why can't you find them liable for trespassing? Uh, my answer is actually that in order to prove that it's more likely than not that they trespassed, you have to establish for that fact finder, the judge or jury, knowledge that it's more likely than not that they trespassed. And that merely statistical evidence doesn't actually suffice to make that probabilistic belief constitute knowledge. It might justify it, but it's not knowledge. Why? Because they can't rule out that this particular person was not accurately represented by the statistical generation, uh, generalization. That, for instance, like this possibility that, oh, this person is super rich, so it's actually really unlikely that they trespassed. The fact finder has a legal obligation, in fact, I think, to treat a person as an individual. And what that means is that they're considering certain possibilities that they're not accurately this defendant represented by the statistics, which is what undermines the epistemic status of the opinion, not whether it's justified, but just its status as knowledge. Um, so if, if you've enjoyed the last um, 60 seconds, please come on Wednesday. Um, I actually, because uh, I'm talking about the book at this, I, I just want to pause, this master class at KCL tomorrow and the next day. So I put a few... Um, flyers for the masterclass over by the coffee cups. And Wednesday evening, I'm giving this talk on probabilistic knowledge and legal proof. Um, and tomorrow morning, I'll be giving just a general overview of the book. So please come if you're interested. Um, Julian Haunt is the person to contact, and his information's on the flyer. Uh, so, but I, yeah, unfortunately, I just I won't go into more detail with the knowledge account of legal uh, standards of proof there. But the upshot uh, so far is simply Yes, in fact, for purposes of some action, we do require that the relevant subjects be acting on the basis of knowledge. And one more frequently asked question. Um, hey, look, uh, <coughs> doesn't statistical evidence, uh, evidence just always ground probabilistic knowledge? Um, I mean, sure, I'm not justified in fully believing they trespassed, but when it's just my 0.501 credence that this guy trespassed, why can't I know just on the basis of he's a randomly selected person from the rodeo that, yeah, this guy is 0.501 likely a trespasser? Um, and in response to that, I mean, global note, I'm not gonna be able to give you like necessary and sufficient conditions for given a description of a case. Oh yeah, that credence is knowledge or isn't knowledge for just this boring reason that I don't really believe in necessary and sufficient conditions for you've got knowledge in a particular case. Um, so another disclaimer, that's like the little Oxford side of me. I think that as my distance between me and Oxford decreases, I just channel Tim more and more strongly. So, um, so I'm, I'm not really going to give you necessary and sufficient conditions for when credences are knowledge, but I will say, look, for familiar reasons, we would think that uh, given that I've got a salient possibility that this person's an exception to a rule, and given that that's an alternative that's relevant for me to consider in a legal context, that the fact that I can't rule out 
this particular possibility that's inconsistent with the probabilistic claim, that's the sort of thing that will show you that I don't have knowledge in that case. Um, so let's see. That brings us up to dependence. Um, take a little water break. So there are two standard definitions of pragmatic encroachment in that literature. People sometimes talk about a straight-up dependence claim, what you know depends on the practical features of your situation. And sometimes they'll spell that out using a supervenience claim. So you find those same two styles of definition of the dependence in the moral encroachment literature. Uh, so I've put a couple examples on your handout. David Enoch says, hey, look, uh, let's think about how what's morally at stake can affect the relevant epistemic standards. And then you've got Alex Guerrero spelling that out as a supervenience claim. Uh, hey, look, as the moral stakes increase, the same level of evidentiary support can result in different consequences with respect to whether an individual knows that P. Um, so actually, that's the negation of a supervenience claim. <clears throat> the idea is, hey, look, um, according to the moral encroachment thesis, there can be opinions X and Y such that they have all the same non-moral features, and yet they differ in their epistemic status. Why? Because for short, we'll just say the epistemic status of the opinion depends on the moral features, the ones that vary. So in other parts of this talk, I'm objecting to other authors in the literature on pragmatic encroachment. And I want to use this section to raise this minor objection to myself. Because um, in chapter 10 of the book, I introduce a rule of consideration. The idea is, look, you actually have a moral reason as you're walking down the street to keep certain possibilities in mind. Say that this person in front of you is not actually represented by statistics about his race. And then considering those possibilities, the idea was, can make it the case that your opinions about that person aren't knowledge. Why? Well, knowledge requires ruling out relevant alternatives, and an alternative that you're explicitly considering is automatically going to be in that class of relevant alternatives. So in the book I pointed out, and I, I still do believe this, look, beliefs formed by profiling, they actually violate a hybrid norm. The norm is, look, you morally ought to be such that you epistemically should refrain from forming beliefs by profiling. Because morally, you got to consider the possibilities. They make it wrong, according to the knowledge norm of belief, for you to form this belief. Um, so if you like, you could compare that with, suppose you go to the zoo with a philosopher friend of yours, and as you're walking into the entrance of the zoo, the philosopher is like, hey, um, I really think you ought to like, think about cleverly disguised mules more. Uh, so you're saying, OK, look, I promise. For the next 15 minutes, I'm just going to think to myself, what really disguised mules might really be a thing. So you walk through the zoo, and now, look, you're in this situation where, like, 
Morally, you ought to keep your promise, which puts you in a situation where epistemically you shouldn't just believe as you pass a zebra cage, oh yeah, those animals are zebras. Um, so you morally should be such that you epistemically should not believe the animals are zebras. That structure is the structure of this hybrid norm I'm talking about. And so the small problem for Moss, like circa February 2018, <laughs> uh, is that I talked about this hybrid norm in this, in the context of a discussion of moral encroachment. Um, and that was wrong. So to set the record straight, like I stand by the hybrid norm and I stand by my acceptance of moral encroachment. It's just that I don't think the former is an instance of the latter. Um, and so now that we've spelled out the nature of the dependence more carefully, I think you can actually come to appreciate that. Uh, the idea is, look, suppose one subject is moral, so they pay attention to this possibility, and so their belief isn't knowledge. And another subject is immoral, so they just forget the possibility and neglect uh, to consider it. And so, you know, suppose their belief actually isn't bad in the same way. Maybe it, maybe it actually is knowledge. So those subjects, that pair of subjects, that's not the kind of minimal pair that proves the existence of moral encroachment. And it's because they don't differ merely in their moral features. They actually are subjects who are like doing very different things epistemically because different possibilities are salient to them. Um, so in a nutshell, that's why I don't think this hybrid norm is exactly the kind, it doesn't exhibit, it's not an argument for the kind of dependence that I want to talk about. Um, and one other way to see that is, suppose you take Beatty's poem again, you imagine a morally bad cab driver who just fails to treat people as individuals. He forms all of his opinions based on merely statistical evidence. And so he's not considering the possibility that Beatty doesn't fit his stereotype as he just forms this full belief that this person in front of him is not gonna tip. The hybrid norm is not actually gonna ground any epistemic criticism of that morally bad agent. So this is really the analog of agents in the ignorant high stakes cases in the pragmatic encroachment literature. The idea is, oh look, you've got some unreflective subjects who just don't even know that the stakes are high and you actually still wanna have some kind of epistemic criticism of them. That's what the fan of pragmatic encroachment gets you. And similarly, that's what we can get from moral encroachment. So unlike the hybrid norm, as moral encroachment theorists, we can say, yes, there is a problem with the beliefs of this morally bad cab driver. This alternative, the one he's not actually considering, really is relevant. Uh, and so in particular, it's one of the relevant alternatives he would have to rule out in order for his belief to be knowledge. Um, okay, so that's... That's the dependence claim. And so the last question I wanna discuss is what moral features of opinions can make a difference to their epistemic status? And the standard answer to this question is 
moral encroachment should just be understood by analogy to pragmatic encroachment. So moral features are going to be like the practical features that we're preventing subjects from having knowledge. So whether you know in particular can depend on, we'll say, the moral stakes of your belief. So the ideology of stakes insofar as that was something that was uh, really looking attractive in the pragmatic encroachment literature has been endorsed by people working in moral encroachment. In fact, the quotes I gave you on page three, David Enoch, we think about how what's morally at stake can affect epistemic standards. Where Alex Guerrero says, as the moral stakes increase, you need more evidence to get knowledge. And um, that move to compare moral encroachment and pragmatic encroachment is also pushed by Jamie Fritz, has a paper called Pragmatic Encroachment and Moral Encroachment, uh, where he argues that you can just get cases of moral encroachment that parallel traditional cases of pragmatic encroachment, which is not that hard. I mean, you could just, without reading Jamie's paper, like stipulate that, oh yeah, Hannah and Sarah are depositing money in like a bank account of a really awesome charity that they don't personally care about. So I want to run with that idea. And uh, so as we try to answer, hey, what are these moral features that make an epistemic difference? Let's reflect on practical features that make an epistemic difference, and then try to find moral features that work like those. And side note, as I embark on that project, I'm setting aside problems that arise for fans of both pragmatic and moral encroachment alike. So I looked at Phil papers before I came this afternoon. So there are 196 papers under the sub-entry pragmatic encroachment. Um, so a lot of people are arguing, hey, look, this concept of, say, stakes isn't really all it's cracked up to be. Or people are saying, hey, look, pragmatic encroachment has trouble accommodating our intuitions about counterfactuals. Like, if I had cared less, I would have known more. Uh, some people will raise problems connected to disability claims. So I'm not actually going to take like the next 11 minutes to refute the 196 papers that are engaged in these debates about whether pragmatic encroachment really is successful. I'm going to actually set aside the problems that apply to both and just focus on, well, okay, how would we, as fans of moral encroachment, try to spell out a good analog of pragmatic of our best current pragmatic encroachment views. And here, I actually think the problem comes again with the idea that we want moral encroachment to apply to, say, cases of racial profiling. Um, in profiling cases, in the ones that are discussed by fans of moral encroachment, people are focusing mainly on ways in which people are harmed, whether or not the belief that's formed about them by profiling is true. So the central harms, in fact, I think of racial profiling, are ones that occur whether or not, hey, you got it, lucky you're right. Uh, so when we discussed on the first page of the handout harms that could be caused by profiling, oh, look, it fails to treat someone as an individual, it expresses a demeaning message. It contributes to structural oppression. Those are harms that are suffered 
even by people who happen to be shoplifting while they're profiled. And so there are, these are general moral considerations against forming a belief by profiling. And advocates of moral encroachment often focus on those kinds of general moral considerations against forming beliefs by profiling. So on the first page of the handout, I actually gave you quotes from Basu and Schroeder who say, oh, as the moral considerations against belief increase, so does the evidence that's required to justify the belief. Or Gardner said, hey, look, if a, if a belief might wrong a person or group, then the threshold for justified belief is higher. The problem is, look, there are moral considerations against formulae by profiling, even when the belief is true. And the belief might wrong a person or group, even when it's true. So that actually stands in sharp contrast with, say, the standard bank case, where it's really financially zero harm to Hannah and Sarah if they happen to truly believe that the bank is open on Saturday. They will go on Saturday. They will make their deposit. Their mortgage will not be in any trouble. So in order to flesh out this desired analogy with the standard cases of pragmatic encroachment, what we as advocates of moral encroachment, I think, should start saying is, and investigating, is that in addition to the harms that are actually caused by all profiling, there are extra moral harms that are suffered by the victims of, of false beliefs formed by profiling. So suppose you falsely believe, based on statistics, that, oh, that person's not going to tip. Or you falsely believe on statistics that, oh, A is more likely to assault you than B. You're thereby causing extra moral harm to a person. That's, that's what we need for the analogy. So I think while advocates of moral encroachment haven't focused on those harms, there are plenty of harms in this category that we can avail ourselves of. Uh, so there is this literature on, for instance, looping effects. Um, so shout out to Rebecca Kukla, who encouraged me to consider this. Um, so I mean, some people might know this under the mode of presentation stereotype threat. There are distinctive genres of harm that can occur to a person who's targeted by a false stereotype. And brought you another bit of literature for this example. So there's an American poet, Ross Gay, who says he's describing the harm of being pro falsely profiled. Um, I've been afraid walking through the alarm gate at the store that maybe something's fallen in my pockets or that I've unconsciously stuffed something in them. I've felt panic that the light-skinned black man who mugged our elderly former neighbors was actually me. And I worried that my parents, with whom I watched the newscast, suspected the same. And nearly every time I've been pulled over, I've prayed there were no drugs in my car, despite the fact that I don't use drugs. I don't even smoke pot. That's to say the story I've heard all my life, heard about black people, criminal, 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 I've started to suspect of myself. So I think Roski's harmed in a certain way by um, 
confronting certain stereotypes. And this gives us really an illustration of a structure of potential moral harm that can mirror the classic structure of potential financial harm in the pragmatic cases. So to spell that out super clearly, the financial harm cases have this structure. You believe the bank is open, and that lets you drive past, which could cause the financial harm of missing an important deposit. Now, driving past would cause that harm only when the belief was false, but because there's a risk of harm if the belief is false, then your belief is never knowledge. So now let's look at this moral encroachment case. Uh, A belief that someone's not going to tip you as a cab driver will enable you to drive past that person, which causes a certain moral harm to a merely potential picked up passenger who actually tips generously. That's the distinctive moral harm caused by false instances of profiling. So driving past causes that harm only when the belief is false, but it's the risk of causing that harm that defeats the status of your belief as knowledge, even in cases where, oh, it turns out to be true. Okay, so a few happy consequences of the view. Um, There's a clear clear consequence is that the epistemic problems with profiling are going to be appropriately circumscribed. Because say, if I'm a doctor and I'm profiling you on the basis of your race to form an opinion about the likelihood that you've got sickle cell anemia, Um, the kinds of looping effects, uh, stereotype threat, those genres of harm are arguably not actually caused in cases where a doctor uh, falsely profiles someone as probably having sickle cell anemia. Uh, Similarly, if you've got, say, an activist who's really working to increase voter education in certain disadvantaged communities, and so they're going to profile people um, according to their reading level as they're distributing pamphlets. They're profiling people by race to form opinions about their reading level. One might argue, hey, look in these cases. There's an epistemic difference between the activist belief and the police officer belief that reflects the lack of a moral harm of a false belief for the activist and the presence of a moral harm Um, of a false profiling belief formed by the officer. And another similar consequence of the view, um, a lot of critiques of profiling depend on characteristics of that group that you pick, like someone's race, uh, gender, um, other characteristics. A lot of critiques of profiling say, hey, wait, The problem with profiling concerns features of that group. Any theory like that has a little bit of trouble when it comes to like instances of profiling where 
there's actually no such group. I just look at all humans and I say, hey, like you're a random human. You're probably heterosexual. So intuitively, like, yeah, that's that's a kind of that's that's got the bad profiling vibe. It's epistemically bad for a lot of the reasons why profiling someone on the basis of race or their characteristics would be bad. It's no feature of the characteristic of being human that's at work in explaining the badness. What is it? Well, arguably, it's actually the harm that's caused to someone when they're <coughs> falsely profiled as being probably straight. And so that's the kind of harm that my account will pick up on. Um, so, okay, good. I have two minutes. And uh, I realize, you know, I promised at the start it'd be like, a super fun talk, and I gave you all these heavy topics, uh, so I feel like bound to end with one uplifting upshot, um, which is, you know, one of my favorite things about the moral and Christian literature, like, typically you've got views that pit your ethical and epistemic selves against each other, so the idea is you've got Tamar Gendler writing this paper saying, Oh, look, profiling, there's just this big dilemma, like moral norms forbid it, epistemic norms require it, you have to just choose whether you're going to be like a good person or a good epistemologist, and that's sad for me because I want to be both. Um, so uh, I think actually just a nice counterpoint to that worldview is cashed out by this idea of moral encroachment, because <coughs> notice... But the knowledge norm for probabilistic belief is saying is there's actually some sense in which as you form beliefs, you want your beliefs to be knowledge. And so these epistemic norms are not forbidding forming. They're, they're not requiring you to form beliefs by profiling. They're actually on the same side as the moral norms. They're actually also forbidding those beliefs. Um, and so just globally... The, the upshot is, look, uh, epistemologists have long assumed that like, only certain sorts of beliefs get to be knowledge, the full beliefs, and I think it's just that assumption's false, and we're better off without it, because when you have probabilistic knowledge in your arsenal, you can better identify certain norms that are violated by acts of profiling, and so I think... In addition to, as I argue in the book, probabilistic knowledge helping us better understand the nature of our own mental states um, and the nature of assertion, I think it also helps us better understand the responsibilities that we have to each other. So thanks. <laughs>